You're listening to a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. We are the Elsers. Welcome to All Series, a production of Galactic Network. I'm Gregor Sprague, and joining me is Corey Scott. And real quick before we get on, I should let you know that all the info on this show, including show notes and subscription links, can be found over at altsnerds.com. And for all the other Galactic Network programs, you can go to gncasts.com. And on Nerds, we tend to shoot our mouths off without thinking, so we will both spoil things and swear liberally. You have been warned. Corey, how you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Gregor? I'm doing good. Um, had the past two days off. Didn't do really all what I planned on doing except for watching movies uh, the whole time. So, yeah. So what and, you planned on doing was watching TV? No, reading comic books because I've got... Oh, well, there you go. So it's one yeah. of the three. You, yeah. you, out, of the, out of the trifecta, you, you did do one of the things that you would have expected to do. You just yeah. didn't do the specific one of the three. Yeah, because I've got what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I've got ten comic books right here that I am really wanting to read because they're ones that I've bought and you know I've got you know like uh, Flash number seven hundred, Doomsday Clock number three of twelve. Well, Quantum you should Woody savor that Doomsday Clock because isn't that one of the ones that's running behind on schedule right now? Yeah, they're they've gone from what every other week to once a month or something like that like they slowed down production on it so i'm like all right makes sense because you know they didn't want to cut down on it was like they didn't want to cut pages or whatever and i'm like okay cool just as long as it's doesn't you know fall under like you know sandman where it's like oh we'll we'll get to it eventually sort of deals well sandman was was kind of a that was not a we'll get to it eventually it was a we we lost something we we did something wrong uh i think neil actually took all that onto himself with uh yeah. salmon overture of why it ran so late which is very nice of him and uh and nice of dc to then say hey J. williams thanks for doing salmon overture for us and now fuck you uh so <laughs> but yeah that's a that's a previous show true let, let, let's get right into the news here and the first news or first bit of news is as beat pointed out really only two sentences this is that brian michael bendis is uh hired by by fox right now to write a script doesn't sound all that difficult here and they have uh tim miller directing it doesn't sound all that bad here um you know or or uncommon the big thing is it's an X-Men movie. It's a mysterious X-Men movie right now. The working title is 143 or 143. I mean, honestly, I I'm excited about this because we talked about this before with Brian Michael Bendis leaving Marvel to go to DC and how the fact that with when he was at Marvel, he did all these different characters. You know, he created all these different characters and the, the article, the deadline article even, you know, basically says after that, that he created... You know, the Miles Morales character, Jessica Jones. He's done, you know, all these different characters. Uh, Riri, Riri Williams with uh, Ironheart. And he tells really great stories, too. 
it's one of these things here that they could be doing this as a if Mar if Disney doesn't buy us thing. So this is possibly a good jumping on point for a cinematic universe. Yeah, uh, and be pointing out something very interesting, which is he just left Marvel to go work at DC. Uh, people have been asking if he's going to be involved in DC film projects, either in the movie universe or the TV universe. And so it it is interesting for him to go at this point back to do Marvel characters in their one of their film universes, not technically Marvel's Marvels, but uh, at Fox. But it it's perfectly okay now. The yeah, because how is that? Well, how is that different than Mark Guggenheim being executive producer over at the Arrowverse, you know, working for DC, but being a comic book writer almost exclusively for Marvel? Well, it's different in the sense that he just went over to DC, and so the the concept, the, what the perception was, is that he was going to be working on DC projects, and everyone's saying, "Oh, are you going to be working on DC film projects?" No, I don't have anything planned. I don't have anything planned, but eventually, that was the the hope. It's not. It's not like there's anything wrong with it. It's just it's surprising, based off the timing. Yeah. Just so, and he's he's said very openly he has a great working relationship with Marvel. Still, he wanted to make sure that when he left, he wasn't going to disrupt anything like his friendship with Joe Casada or any of the people over there. He's got nothing bad to say about Marvel in leaving. He was just looking at it as this is the right thing for me to do right now because I feel like I've done everything I can do in Marvel Comics, mm -hmm. but Marvel Films or Fox Films with Marvel characters is a different thing. So the the one forty three. There's a couple of different guesses as to what that's referencing. There have been two X-Men number 143s. Uh, there was the Grant Morrison run that had an issue 143 that involved Wolverine and Phantom X and had something to do with the Weapon X project that Wolverine was originated in and going backwards and involving characters like Captain America and stuff that were kind of like precursors of what Wolverine was supposed to be, the the secret soldier project. Yeah. That doesn't seem as likely as the other one, which was uncanny X-Men 143 was a kitty pride story where a demon showed up and kind of chased her around. And I believe if I remember this correctly, it's like, I don't think I've actually got to read the issue, but I read stuff where she referenced it later. She wound up killing it by using the engines from the SR 71 blackbird, the, uh, the jet that they use. There has been talk recently of them doing a Kitty Pride standalone movie. Mm -hmm. And there is the New Mutants movie that has been advertised and pushed back very far uh, that <laughs> is more of a horror-themed film involving X-Men characters. This tonally sounds like it could be similar to that. It could be the next film in that series because Kitty Pride is age appropriate to the new mutants, or at least was when they first appeared and she was pulled over that team at one point. I assume that it's going to be a new take on Kitty Pride. I don't think that they're planning on getting Ellen Page. <sighs> Ellen Page back in. Thank you. Especially because it sounds like she had a terrible relationship with uh, one of her films in that universe. That is possible. That that seems likely. Bendis has a long history of, of writing Kitty Pride. Uh, it has involved her in his ultimate uh, Spider-Man series and had her date Peter Parker over there, had her involved in his Guardians of the Galaxy run as well. 
And of course, he wrote X-Men for a while. So while I wouldn't necessarily say he's the main voice associated with Kitty Pride, he has a love of the character. So yeah. getting him involved in a Kitty Pride film makes sense. And uh, beats and beats asking, but him doing it with Tim Miller, doesn't that imply that they'd rather pick a lesser known or offbeat character? I don't necessarily think so. Because you look at the everyman, they don't know who Kitty Pride is. So she would still be the a lesser known character because she's not up there yet with the Wolverines or Cyclopses or Storms or, you know, or Jean Grey's. She hasn't been consistent as yeah. a regular X-Men character. When the when they first introduced the X-Men into the cartoon universe, there was a short, I think it was done as a, well, they did a Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends episode that involved the X-Men and she was part of that. And then they tried to do a spin-off cartoon called Pride of the X-Men which was Kitty Pride was the introductory character that much like they use Jubilee in the 90s cartoon. And then she went off to Excalibur for a long time in the comics. Yeah. Uh, disappeared out of the, the main group. But Deadpool wasn't really a, a lesser known character. Deadpool was a huge character for Marvel for a long time. Cable is a huge character for Marvel. Uh, they just weren't. The outside world knows the X-Men as Wolverine and Storm. And then to some degree, Cyclops and Jean Grey, and then a lot of characters that are around and Professor Xavier and Magneto. Those are those are to the the regular people on the street, the most likely you can get them to say, oh, who's an X-Men character? Now that we've seen Deadpool perform what he did, what what comes up to me is how do you who do you pull in to make a movie work? And it it has something to do with their power set. It has something to do with the. with the notes of their character that that ring true to the, the writer or the producer to say, this is why I want to use this character. I want someone who's presumably a teenager if they're introducing her again, uh, or if they have her as an adult, that'll be a little unusual, but not far away from where she is in the comics right now. You have her, she does have her religious aspects as far as being a Jewish character in the comics and has actually that's been brought up in multiple stories. There's a lot of different stuff that can come into it, but her power set for one tonally speaks to something that you can use in a dark movie because of the fact that she's able to kind of disconnect herself from the physical world, give some interesting things to do in a like being chased around. Well, if you're someone who can walk through walls, you think you can get away, but if you're being chased by a demon, that makes things a little bit different, uh, especially if she's inexperienced and she doesn't know how to utilize those powers well. I don't know. Uh, I think it's it's potentially cool, no matter what it is. It's Bendis writing. It's Tim Miller. So people who have a great deal of success so far with X-Men characters and characters in general that we'll see. So the next story is one that we uh, pushed back from last week. And that is that DC is working on a Lobo movie and they are looking at Michael Bay to be the director of the Lobo movie. Now, Corey, explain to people who Michael Bay is. Michael Bay has brought you such things as uh, Tinky Winky takes over the universe and uh, (laughs) look at my balls part two for Munda. Uh, (laughs) Okay, in all seriousness, though, explain, because Lobo is 
a more obscure DC uh, character. Yeah, so it's funny because I, I sat in and uh, was part of the live audience for the uh, Ink Geek Studios Mind of a Geek this past Friday. They had a friend of our show and many of our shows, uh, JF DeBow on. And they actually talked about this a little bit and there was some back and forth. And and I had forgotten that we didn't talk about this on air. Uh, <laughs> somebody just rambled for an hour about some bullshit. But JF had many of the same thought process, thought thoughts on this as I do, which is Lobo is a character that was basically created to be a Michael Bay movie uh, without there being a Michael Bay at the time. So in the, the 80s, uh, Lobo was introduced as part of uh, Legion, which is not Legion of Superheroes, but it was kind of like a present day version of characters and concepts that were from Legion of Superheroes. Uh, and Lobo was this guy who was the last of his planet, the last of his race, essentially. He killed everybody. So, so, else he, on his so he's like, oh, damn it. I was, I was going to do a joke with this, but you beat me to. He was the counter to Superman. He's he's the last of his planet because he killed everybody else on his planet, and he's just the the biggest badass around. He was kind of designed. Uh, it, his first designs were weird. He looked very psychedelic space. It looked more like he was out of Thor Ragnarok than what he eventually looked like. But he was kind of designed to be DC's answer to Wolverine, taken to a very very high extreme, and it was it was perfect for going into the nineties where extreme was everything uh lobo became more of a badass biker in space who was a bounty hunter who just like uh, ate planets and crapped out laser beams and just in general was was a total tool head over the top but could throw down against people like superman and hold his own the rock would have done a really good job with this the rock playing black adam is more attuned to my heart but the rock would have been a very great person to play Lobo and they did in the crossover of DC versus Marvel they had people vote to see who won in specific matchups so they had Storm fight Wonder Woman they had Superman fight Thor I think all of these different character matchups happened and they had Wolverine fight Lobo but they had people call in to a 900 number I believe and vote for who they think should win uh, much like when people called in to determine if Robin should live or die in Death in the Family. Because people don't fuck up when they when you let the audience decide what they want the story to be. Uh, every time it led to dumb things. In this story, it was very stupidly done that Wolverine beat Lobo. And on a power scale, there's no way in hell. Plus, you don't even see the fight. They go behind a bar and you just see like sound effects and them bashing each other. And then you see Wolverine come walking out and drink a beer. So it was a real fucking shit show of a comic of like, if you're going to give us the matchup, give us the fucking matchup. They didn't do it. Anyways, Michael Bay is a person who does big, loud, boisterous, exploding, extreme movies. I don't personally enjoy his stuff uh, because for me. The stories are just very hard to follow. They just jump from scene to scene to scene to scene because this looks cool. This looks cool. This looks cool. Hey, let's spin around everybody uh, as they try to look <laughs> outward. Um, and it's 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 his bad boys films. Uh, it's his Transformers films. There's just an aesthetic to them that I find uninspiring. 
But if you were going to say to me, who the fuck should do a Lobo movie? God damn, you can't pick a better person than Michael Bay. Because whereas one of my complaints about Zack Snyder doing superheroes is that Zack Snyder is very dark. He was right tonally for the Watchmen stuff. Uh, He was certainly right tonally for 300, which is probably his film that I like the most because it makes the most sense in relation to the original work. But I don't think he's right totally for people like Superman or Wonder Woman or even Batman. Michael Bay is right totally for Lobo. Yeah. You know, it, it's just that's that's the perfect matchup. And and that's what I'd like to see. You can you can give a director who does specific things well and, and find something that fits them, that that suits their work. You can also have a director say, oh, I'm going to go outside of my comfort zone and I'm going to do something different for myself and enjoy this character in the way that they're supposed to be done and, and just put myself into making that story instead of what I usually do. But it depends on the director. A lot of them just would be like, I just want to make my movie and uh, throw whatever you've got as a character into it. And, and I'll tell you what you should think about Clark Kent and man of steel. And I'll tell you what you should think about Batman and why uh, Martha is a killing word, like in fucking Dune. It, it just, <laughs> I get this. It's still not going to be for me. Yeah. But I'll probably crack up when I watch it on cable. So the next story, it's about the, the Benji franchise. Um, now, for those of you guys who do not know, the, uh, Benji appeared in the 70s and 80s and is going to be coming back as a Netflix original movie. Uh, yeah. Um, just so you know, it's not it's not Brad Pitt aging backwards. No, <laughs> it's it's, it's uh, Benji was was sort of like. Lassie, uh, yeah, it was sort of like Lassie. It was it was like uh, it was a take on Lassie, but the dog was it wasn't a uh, it's a smaller. I, I can go dog. into this a little bit more. Yeah, Benji yeah. is is a is a small dog. He's a mutt. Uh, he he wasn't Lassie because he didn't have the pedigree. He was more like a, a stray dog that people found and very adorable little thing. Now, of course, Benji was multiple dogs over the years because the dogs die fast unfortunately and i remember specifically there was benji the hunted i think was the last major film release that i remember starring the character uh, and that's ben- benji running through the woods all over the place i had a love of this movie which starred benji a benji but it, as a kid i didn't know that i just thought it was all the same benji and it may have been the first one called oh heavenly dog and oh heavenly dog starred chevy chase as a guy who was murdered and came back to Earth as a dog, he he basically goes up to heaven and they reincarnate him, and he doesn't get sent back because he doesn't go through the line and stuff. He's like, yeah, I gotta get back down there, and he goes back down to Earth and they put him into a dog's body, and then in that dog's body he tries to solve the his own murder, and at the same time protect this woman that he's kind of in love with, and becomes her pet. But the whole time, he's just kind of pining away for it, everything. And it's a really cute, maybe a little cheesy now at this point. But in the 80s, it was like I watched that thing all the time. It was a cute film, had a sweet ending that was still a little sad. But was like, to me, the the Benji movie. And there were other movies that I think were like Benji in my mind, but probably weren't Benji like Chomps, which was about a robot dog. Yeah. But I was I was a fan, you know, when somebody said, hey, there's a new Benji product. And I was like, oh, right on. Cool. But I aged out of it really quick. And then they stopped putting the stuff out there. 
This is more like classic Benji. It's a couple of kids find a stray dog. Uh, they try to hide it from their mom. And then it becomes an adventure about the things that happen with the kids and Benji trying to protect them. It is a perfect reboot of this actor slash character slash dog. So the brilliant part with this, with the, the Benji franchise, it was created by Joe camp. A lot of the stuff was written and directed by Joe camp throughout from 1974 until 2004 was the last one. And then you have the main run essentially from 74 to 87 um, with the last one being Benji the Hunted, like you mentioned. And then they tried to revive it in 2001 with Benji's Film Festival, 2004 with Benji Off the Leash, which was the last one that was directed by Joe Camp. And his son is actually the one who is behind the, the 2018 reboot here. And uh, they, they have a trailer up. It's coming out in March. Um, also, it's done. It's with uh, done with, which seems like they're producing everything. Blumhouse Productions, they're producing this film. I'm excited for this because it's it's a family friendly movie. I mean, it's one of those that we you you don't go. It's not like oh, family friendly, but not for the little kids. Like the, from what it sounds like, this sounds like a movie for everyone. You know, everyone who loves being alive or whatever <laughs> you know and so there's a there's a there's the netflix stuff that comes out that is huge and gets a lot of press like your stranger things like your house of cards uh your orange is the new black and then there's the the direction that netflix has been doing with more family-oriented stuff and and even that we've got the one day at a time reboot and the fuller house series so this is leaning more towards that, is that Netflix has content for everybody. And this is one of those things that I think parents are going to... Like, I think there's an option when you turn on Netflix if you want to log into one of your own personal user IDs or if you want to log into something that's completely safe for family, kid-oriented stuff. And this is going to land on that kid-oriented thing, which is great yeah. because uh, what parents need is the ability to turn on the TV and ignore their kids for four hours straight. Uh, so, and I mean, and honestly, I think this is like like be put in here, you know, put in our chat. Um, you know, don't forget that Ted, Ted Sarand, uh, Sarandos wants to release eighty movies this year. So yeah, they're not all going to be the big name blockbusters. It's going to be these, you know, the fa more family friendly the you know, indie darlings, you know, all these different types of movies. And so it's, you know, it does make sense in that, in that aspect as well, because pretty sure a lot of them, a lot of the people there were like, Hey, I remember watching Benji, you know, the Benji movies when I was a kid, or maybe they even had, they had the lunch boxes like my mom has and stuff like that. Yeah. So it, and the last Benji movie that came out was in 2004. Like you said, it was written by Joe camp and did not do especially well. So it may be they, they were just like, this is not a movie that is probably going to land well in theaters. But it is one of those things that when it's on TV or if it's available to them, watch at home that they'll watch and might rewatch and rewatch and rewatch that. That's the thing is I, I feel like 
we're at a, a point right now where movie theaters, you have to fight to get the attention and retain attention. And people just don't casually see movies in the same way that we used to and go see things that were just like, oh, well, uh, let's see what this is about. Or, oh, I heard this new movie is out starring this person. Let's go see that. It, it's more of like there's nine Marvel movies and uh, three DC movies and a couple of Star Wars movies and Jumanji for some reason. And all these things are out. And that's that's taking up all of our, our movie budget this year. And where's the new uh, Minions slash uh, Despicable Me slash probably not Shrek anymore, but things like Shrek and all those people and the new Incredibles, the Pixar stuff. And those are the things that the kids are going to choose to go see. And I have a feeling that a, a NG movie in 2018, because it's not going to be nostalgic for the kids, it's going to be nostalgic for the parents. I don't think the parents are going to say, hey, we should go see that Benji movie. And I don't think the kids are going to say, I want to go see the Benji movie. So put it in a place where kids eyeballs land on it now uh, when they're just looking for anything to watch. And then they build up a love for Benji like we had in the, the 70s and 80s. And hopefully it will help going forward to kind of reboot the franchise. Yeah. Now going on the production side, because like I pointed out uh, the Benji film, the, this new film is being produced by Blumhouse films. This is by looking through the Wikipedia rabbit hole that I have. This is their first family movie. Yeah. A lot of their stuff has been based around horror movies and stuff. Horror thriller. Yeah. Uh, the they did do Gemini Holograms, which was a horror movie in the sense of like, <laughs> what the fuck makes you think that counts as a Gemini Holograms movie, you idiot? <laughs> yeah. And the, the only other one that would come close, but it's, they, they have it listed as a drama, which is understandable, but they have uh, The Resurrection of Gavin Stone, which is, uh, it's done by WWE Studios and Blumhouse Tilt, but it's it was a movie that started uh, uh, Brett Dalton and Shawn Michaels. I mean, yeah, this is really their first foray into, you know, into this. And also keeping up with tradition, Brandon Camp is writing and directing this. So, I mean, it's son do- taking after father here. But yeah, and, and also, just so you guys know, it comes, uh, the trailer is out now. You can find it on uh, Netflix's YouTube channel. Um, and in uh, Benji premieres, which they miss said spelled premieres in the article on Netflix on March 16th. So, yeah. Now, real quick, before we get into um, me talking about the movies that I've watched the past four days, I want to let you guys know how you can help us out here, help the network out over here. Um, and it's by going to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash galactic netcasts. And on there, we just ask that you donate however much you want. You do, do as little, do as much. Um, and with that, you're helping us keep the lights on here. You're helping us to pay for the WordPress blog, You know, pay for all the services that we use on the audio end. And if you find any enjoyment out of it, we just ask, you know, help us out. Patreon.com slash Galactic Netcasts. So I have the else views here. I have two documentaries in here. The first movie or the first documentary is on Hulu. Um, This is Batman and Bill. Um, Now, this is basically a man's quest to get Bill Finger his proper credit. Now, for those of you guys who do not know who Bill Finger is, he is the co-creator of Batman. He basically did a handshake deal with Bob Kane when, here, you dive into the history, and it 
covers a lot of the history, what he went through. And you're like, you just sort of go, damn, like, like he got shafted. There's a brilliant part with how they do this, where they intertie instead of doing like reenactments or stuff, they do comic book esque animated reenactments of different things. And, you know, complete with, you know, hitting on the, what it was like in the apartment when Bob Kane and Bill Finger were coming up with the idea of Batman all the way to, they hit on when Bill dies and the, he pulled up like the uh, guy, um, his name is Mark Tyler Nobleman. And he found the death certificate where it said died of a heart attack um, natural causes, no, no friends, no family. And so he was led to believe that Bill Finger is buried in a, you know, in a, in a, a potter's field, you know, in a pauper's, pauper's grave, you know, unmarked, you know, just marked by a number, but not by the person's name, you know, gravesite. And then we get into talking about his son. And so he's like, oh, great. Find, find a son. And he's gay. Um, and so he's doing this investigation to find out he his son died in 1992, and he fu- he's looking for he's calling up people with the last name Finger, and they're like no 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 no, and then they go he goes back to what his uh, Bill's mom's side of the family and you know goes does the genealogy stuff that way, you know is there any cousins or stuff because he's trying to get while he's doing this research for his book he's also trying to get Bill the proper credits. And he can't do anything because he's not related. You know, he's not an heir. So he's trying to find an heir so that, you know, DC can make things right here. Long story short, he does. Um, you know, he finds that Bill has a granddaughter. And it's it's a really great documentary. I mean, honestly, it hits on so much, so many things. Like, I never realized Batman for Bob Kane was such a cash grab. Like he literally just did this because uh, Schuster and Siegel had just cashed in, you know, had just sold the rights to DC. And this is, I'm basically quoting Bob Kane, you know, cashed in on, on the fame there and how he was such an asshole. Like they talked about how here you've got for the premiere of the movie, you know, of the 90 or the 89 Batman movie. And you've got him, he's styling, like he's just living it up. Like, yeah, I'm the sole creator, taking it basically to his grave, except for his book that he co-wrote, his autobiography that he had a ghostwriter in, where he admits that Bill has about, Bill chipped in about 50% and all that. And that was what threw it over with DC going, hey, we're going to fix this. And that's where we saw with, uh, starting with what Batman versus Superman and where it's, it had Bill Finger on the name. The other cool part that they had was on the Popper's grave because they kept hitting on it. And I'm like, they're going to r- close this. Like either someone had a document of which grave he was in or something. But no, the coroner at the time when he died, yeah, he had no friends, had no family. His son picked him or got him a couple days later, had him cremated. And because he was living out in Oregon at the time, put in the sand, drew the Batman logo, put his dad's ashes inside the logo and let the tide come in. 
was so touching. It was such a moment where I'm like, oh, that's so sweet to have happen. And honestly, so good. I love, I love this documentary. It was, it, it was really good. And it makes, makes me wonder where else are these the or do these things happen you know with the comic books stuff you know like where else do we have these injustices that need to be fixed and all that and well and and in a lot of cases they probably can't ever really be fixed we, we're seeing what i think is is interesting is we're seeing kind of this resurgence uh because these characters have gotten so much in the public eye more and more we're seeing this resurgence into the understanding of these characters were created by somebody and that's getting to be more vocalized. Uh, so for, for years, there was always the, the kind of bad taste that people had in relation to Stan Lee being put on such a high pedestal at Marvel Comics. And I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve to be, but that Jack Kirby, who was co-creator on many of Marvel's characters, didn't get that same recognition and took a long time and a lot of fighting to get Jack kind of any recognition. And, and certainly when it came to the profits and stuff, Jack was screwed and his family had to fight and fight and fight. Uh, Siegel and Schuster had to fight several times mm -hmm. to get both uh, recognition compensation for the characters that they were involved in. Uh, but now we're seeing things like the, maybe somewhat fictionalized story of the creator of Wonder Woman and his yeah. relationship with, uh, I don't know if they were both his wives, but I haven't seen the movie yet, but we're seeing more and more about these creators come out. We're getting the Batman and Bill documentary. It's the untold story of Marvel comics. These things are starting to come to limelight because people want to know, they want to understand the history of, of where these characters came from and why we don't hear some of these names brought up in the same breath as we hear some other creator names. Uh, because I've always said, for me, the best part of making comics is the collaboration aspect. It's it's working with, with someone like Levi uh, in particular. But, but just in general, I, I love that I get to make art with somebody else and what we both bring to it, I think, improves what we do than what we do on our own. Although... Levi is fully capable of making great comics on his own, and probably the better Bowyer stuff is is his stuff alone. Just, but just in general, it, it's it's sad that people like the creator of Black Lightning has to fight still to have a voice in how his character is used, and yeah. creators of of characters from Teen Titans and things. Uh, the creator of Blade, who basically was sued to the point where he wasn't allowed to introduce himself as a creator of that character anymore and couldn't sell pictures and stuff of the character, which is just ridiculous. But basically they tried to wipe him off of the, the whole history of the character to agree. They also put his name down in the books, I think, or for a while, maybe they weren't even doing that, but they just said, yeah, you don't get to go to cons and say that you made blade. Good luck. That really sucks. And it's part of it is because these things are owned by corporations and you want to see them go on and on. But imagine uh, a world of peanuts without recognizing Charles Schultz, yeah. you know, or imagine a world where Calvin and Hobbes exists and there's no Bill Watterson. 
to to hold up against that. And and Bill's a private guy and doesn't want to be in the public spotlight. But I feel like knowing what we know about Bill adds to the magic of what Calvin and Hobbes is. You know, uh, Jim Davis with Garfield, he obviously he's he's created a a sort of franchise of the character that allows him to not have to work on the comic strips anymore and still benefit from it. That's that's fine. That's a that's a reasonable thing to do. It's like Todd McFarlane not writing or drawing Spawn, but there's still Spawn comics coming out. I I don't think that's necessarily selling out as just determining like, well, at some point I would have given up on Garfield and this allows Garfield to keep coming. But you can't deny that Jim Davis was the man for years and made one of the most successful comic strips of all time. And so you have to have an appreciation for that creator. Uh, And and sometimes creators aren't great people. Sometimes they're not people that you want to reward, uh, even though they make great stuff that you love. Uh, We we see a lot of that in Hollywood right now. But you still deserve the credit. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a guy who was uh, the artist on Rat Queens and had some pretty hefty shit go down and was removed from Rat Queens and the book struggled for a while trying to find a new consistent artist to be on it. And the writer finally found somebody that he's working with again to relaunch the book. But it sucks to have lost that original artist because the circumstances were bad. It, it It's probably the right thing to do. But you can't then just pretend that this guy didn't co-create these characters and didn't make those comics that got people interested in the series in the first place. It, it's a it's a tough place to be. But again, he did that stuff. He deserves to be recognized for it. And I feel like that's that's just something that, that needs to be addressed is that. Yeah, you, you, you can't erase history. No, yeah, no matter yeah. how hard you try. Alt right. <laughs> Fake news. Sorry. Um, but no. Yeah. So I don't know where you can find it around the world, but you can find Batman and Bill on Hulu here in America. Um, and, and definitely worth the watch. I mean, learn you learn so much about comics in general. They feature a lot of people in here. You know, Kevin Smith is in here. Um, Todd McFarlane, the creator of Spawn, or they feature archival footage of, you know, Bob Kane, uh, Bill Finger. You see like Stanley's, I guess his old, his old show that where he interviewed Bob Kane on it. Like they play, they play that a little bit. Yeah. Really good. Highly recommend it. The second documentary I watched, which I watched like right after Batman and Bill is Jim and Andy, the great beyond. This is on Netflix. This is also the full title is Jim and Andy, the great beyond featuring a very special contractually obligated mention of Tony Clifton. So Corey, you've probably seen man on the moon, correct? I have, I am not the biggest fan of Andy Kaufman. And just in general, that that movie is very, very good being about something that I would otherwise like eh, not probably give a crap about. I I grew up watching Taxi. Uh, It was on. It was probably the last thing that came on right before I had to go to bed, or maybe it was when I had to go to bed on Sunday nights. And so I couldn't stay up to watch it, but I always wanted to. And so I kind of sneak down and, and watch the TV from the stairway when my mom was watching it sometimes and hope she wouldn't catch me. <laughs> but the song that Jim Carrey does with Michael Slate from R.E.M. 
called Crazy Crazy World. Is it Friendly Friendly World? Sorry, where he he's basically playing Andy Kaufman singing with Michael. Is it beyond, uh, it's a song. Yeah, called Friendly Friendly World that was on the Man of the Moon soundtrack. Um, because they mention in the on the Wikipedia article the uh the Great Beyond as the song that was in there because it was the band's highest ranking, you know, song before REM in the charts. Right, but that's not the song that they had on the soundtrack for Man on the Moon. But that song right might have been on the soundtrack as well, but that's not the song I'm talking about. They they did this little duet and it's very cute. And at some point halfway through, uh, Jim switches over to doing Tony Clifton in the song. Oh yeah, that's, the the, the, fr- the friendly world. Yeah, performed yeah, by Michael. It, it's this really cute little thing. They do a great back and forth in it. Uh, my wife and I that that was on the the first CD that I ever made for her because she really likes Man on the Moon and she really loved. Uh, oh, I think. Just in general, it's just a really cute song. We always, every once in a while, we'll break it out and we'll sing together in the car and do our back and forth on it. And it's funny how it's been like 18 years since we did that the first time. We still remember all the words, but I've seen the movie again. Not not my favorite thing to sit down and watch, but it is a really good film and kind of magical to see how well Jim kind of embodies the characters uh, and and comes at it multiple times to to play two different characters. It it's very romanticized, I think. But it also then leaves you with this question of is Andy Kaufman still alive? Like, because that's always the thing is we can't just lose people and have them be gone. Uh I'm sorry guys, Andy Kaufman's dead. He's not Tupac. <laughs> but yeah, so I mentioned this because I came into this as a fan of Jim Carrey. And watching Man the Man on the Moon, and and I I really do like it. Um, it hit a lot of things because of the fact that you know it was Jim Carrey, but then also there's Jerry Lawler in here, and then learning about the feud that he had with um you know with Andy Kaufman back in the day, um you know back during as they say in the in the biz here the wrestling business here back during the territories, but. What I didn't know is while Jim was filming this movie, he had a documentary crew following him around and all this, you know, basically doing the behind the scenes stuff. And he held on to it for 20 years. And th- until, you know, they decided he decided to do this. Um, you know, uh, actually, this is a Vice Films you know, our product. And you see these interviews. Like with because Jim, in his words, was possessed by Andy Kaufman, um, which is just it, it reinterprets as Jim Carrey is fucking bonkers. Oh no, you can okay, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna say this right now. You can, yeah, yeah. You can listen to him on comedians and cars getting coffee. I believe it's like episode three with how they have it organized right here uh, on Netflix. But then just the interviews parts that he's doing. In the now, you know, in the like 2015 or 16, whenever they were filming the him talking and he full on believes that he was, you know, it was Tony Clifton and Andy Kaufman, you know, taking over his body so much so that he had, there's a scene there where he talks about Milos Forman, who was the director of man on the moon called up Jim and he answered the phone. He's like, oh, God, I hate working with Andy. And like he had everyone. I don't know if they're necessarily believing in the 
the fact that Jim was possessed by Andy, but going along with it, but going well, with the I, whole. And, but that's that's so Kaufman esque as well, because Andy Kaufman, while playing Laka on Taxi, would suddenly make them deal with Tony Clifton being yeah. a part of it, and and not give any cadence to no we're two different people he would treat them like a completely different person he would act like an asshole and expect everybody to just deal with it but it's that that's so what he was and so the thing with Kaufman was you could never tell when he was faking or being true so yeah there there is the sense that an actor can go method and lose themselves so much in a part that they become the part and there is a possibility that Carrie believes that he was possessed by Andy Kaufman or he's just doing Andy Kaufman to the point where he's trying to make people believe that he was possessed by Andy and this is where I honestly think it is that second option because you listen to Jerry Lawler do the talks about when they were filming the whole wrestling rivalry thing, um, because as people will know, in this time in history, um, in Andy Kaufman's career, he was wrestling women um, and calling him the the champion of all uh, of, of of everyone or whatever. And like they did these spots, and um, I don't know if it was he reached out to uh, Jerry Lawler and his uh, wrestling promotion. Or what, but eventually they had, you know, they did the appearance on the late show with um with David Letterman at the time, and they had their wrestling match and all this stuff. And Jerry talks about how Andy always called him Mr. Lawler and was very you know, behind the scenes was very respectable. Where you don't see that with Jim as Andy. It was what you saw on TV. Um, but the the other part on this too, because it's called Jim and Andy, so it dives into Jim Carrey here too. You know, showing clips from you know his other movies. You know, talking about him, talking about his father, him, him on In Living Color, and all this. It's very much about Jim Carrey as well. You know, this is sort of how their lives, in a way, parallel. But yeah, really, really good. I mean, I was. Uh, I had had heard about this, you know, seeing it through on Netflix. I'm like, yeah, I'll get to it later, but that, and also had seen it on, um, heard it mentioned on the morning, the morning stream on recommendals over there. But yeah, it's really good. It's surprisingly good for me, you know, in my opinion. Seeing this, really enjoy it. Being the part that it was, uh, being both the huge movie that it was, being who it was about, and the the character of. Not the character of of who Andy Kaufman played, but who Andy Kaufman actually was, was kind of a character. It seems very interesting. And to see the parallels between Andy and Jim, which, as you say it, that makes absolute sense, is Jim has always gone deep into being the silly, funny guy and never seemed to have an off switch. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just constantly on, kind of like Robin Williams was constantly on. So you, you wonder if how much of that is an act, how much of that is just who he is, how much of that is maybe brought to a, a deeper condition because of the things that he does for for comedy and for his art. 
and it, it it's very fascinating and uh, like he's not in the spotlight nearly as much as he used to be but jim carrey for a long time was a very beloved actor and comedian and you know knowing that he's dealt with some very hard times possibly some mental health things and stuff that while not completely public kind of seem obvious and have been talked about you, you just want to you want to hope that he's okay and you want to see if maybe this is a healing thing for him to release this because I don't want to have a situation where we lose Jim in a similar way to how we lost Robin. I, 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 I just, I don't wish that on anybody, but certainly, you know, as being someone that I loved way back in, in living color or once bitten, which is one of my favorite movies in the eighties where he played a vampire uh even earth girls are easy which is just weird uh there's a lot of great jim carrey work and i'd like to think that he's capable of still bringing us some great work in the future and this is probably part of that yeah um because the other part that stuck out to me is the fact that he he you know he talked about the movies beforehand like ace ventura the mask dumb and dumber and how you know even stuff like the truman show where they were all different times in his life they were all like parallels to it you know with with how he felt and stuff like that even um inter- eternal sunshine you know how it was a different you know a state of mind yeah um the state of mind that he was in it was really nice to hear really cool to hear all these things but yeah it's i don't know um cory i see you have a else view here yeah this is this is one of those things where this is purely out of, of my love for something. Uh, so uh, as, as else starts viewers know, I do a show called podcast of terror and uh, watch and review horror movies for the most part for the last several years. Uh, even before we were podcasting, I, I got really into our local uh, Saturday night, horror movie show uh it was uh creepy coffee movie time when i started uh creepy coffee movie time went off the air although you can buy the dvds if you go to psychotropictheater.com or if you go to novemberfire.com uh and taylor who sells a lot of his art as uh t-shirts and other stuff is also selling the dvds there of the old creepy coffee shows some of the cast members from creepy coffee went on to be on this new thing called circus of chaos which is a half hour sort of vaudevillian variety show hosted by uh, cousin Dave. And uh, I really love that, but it's, it's not the, the horror movie stuff. It's, it's just more of a vaudevillian kind of weirdness, but they introduced a new version of creature features and creature features in the Bay area goes back to the seventies. I think was hosted by John Stanley and Bob Wilkins. Bob Wilkins, I think, was the original and has been a huge mainstay of the San Francisco Bay Area for years and years. Now, there was another person who tried to do a Creature Features just before this new one started up, got a little overzealous and tried to copyright the thing so that only he could do Creature Features. People rejected that because Creature Features, one, kind of goes across the country. There's all over the place. Two, it obviously wasn't created by him it's a it's a legacy thing you want to uh, 
pay tribute to the people who came before you. You want to pay tribute to the people who are doing it at the same time. You want to pay tribute to the people who are going forward. You know, at some point, the team who are doing Creature Features in the Bay Area now, they're going to be done and there's going to be a legacy after them, hopefully, uh, because we want to promote horror stuff. But the guy who's doing it, uh, Jeff Bodine, plays a character named Vincent Vandal, and he is a ex-rock star who bought this weird mansion out in Bodega Bay and moved in there with his butler, Livingston, and his creepy little friend, Tangella, who doesn't speak, but uh, just likes to torture and kill things and blow stuff up. And they host the show and they have great guests on every week. So this has been going for about a year or two. Started out more in the North Bay and then moved down to the local San Francisco channel. So I've been watching it along with uh, everybody that I've been in the chats with on Saturday nights from Creepy Coffee. And it's a great show. But what I didn't know, so the guy who plays Vincent Jeff was a tech guy. And you'll see commercials for some of his products uh, during the show. He made a good amount of money doing his tech stuff and decided to start doing this stuff with the, the horror theme uh, shows on Saturdays. They built this million dollar set, which is the mansion. And they were doing a series for a couple of years before their creature features thing came out. And the series was an actual kind of sitcomish show. The stars, those three characters, uh, Vincent, Tangela, and Livingston, but some other characters as well, all hanging out in that mansion. And it's very much akin to the Munsters or the Adams family, with a little bit more adultish themes, but not overly so. And I was super excited. I'm like, holy crap, there's this whole legacy for the Creature Features crew that I didn't know about. And so I emailed him on Saturday night because uh, they they read through emails and letters on the show. And while well, I knew I wasn't going to show up on that one, I just emailed him like, hey, is there any chance that I could see some of these shows somewhere? Do you have them up? And I got a response back near immediately saying thank you for the kind words. And yeah, they're available on Vimeo. Uh, just the first six episodes, I think there were more episodes of the show that maybe they'll hopefully go up later. And he says, uh, I'll, I'll read the email. The first few episodes are rough, but they do improve as they go on, which I don't know how much better they need to be because I've watched the first two episodes and I'm just totally in love with it. But again, I have a love for these characters already from being the host of my creature features. But it's it's a funny show. In the first episode, they dig up a coffin. Remember about a month or so ago when I went into impromptu ad for the Casper sleep box? Yeah. Okay, so in the very first episode of the show, they essentially do the Casper sleep box. They don't do it from <laughs> Casper, but they dig up. It, it starts out with Tangela and, and one of the other characters digging up a, a coffin from the cemetery, dumping the body back into the grave, bringing the coffin to the house because their roommate snores so loudly that nobody in the house can sleep. So they have her sleep in this coffin and she wakes up later and she's like, it's the sound of sleep that I've ever had. And they're like, yeah, we all got a much better night's rest too. And I'm like, holy shit. 
Like that is exactly <laughs> what I was talking about, except they should have buried her. Um, <laughs> but I was just like so happy. I'm like, I was right. I was right. And I was channeling, you know, some of my favorite people. So House on the Hill, you can also, if you go on Vimeo, you can see the episodes from Creature Features. I think just the interspersed stuff, you can't watch the actual movies that they're watching. Uh, so you won't get to see the whatever it is they're talking about. And they did that for a while with on YouTube for Creepy Coffee Movie Time as well. They don't have the rights to stream the whole film, just yeah. their parts of it. But it's kind of like the uh, riff track stuff. If you listen to the riff tracks and then you play it with your DVD of the movie and you just get them to sync up that it works or how we used to do uh, Pink Floyd with The Wizard of Oz. But this is this since this is a whole show and a whole series, I figured that if you want to kind of get a feeling of the the people that I get to watch on my Saturday nights doing the the horror movie stuff, then you can. It's a great way to do it and and get into the characters. And then I think, unfortunately, they were streaming the episodes as they aired on a North Bay TV was the tv station but i think the tv station is up for sale so i don't know if you can still stream those episodes on their website or not uh, or if they're going to do another way since now they're playing on uh, coffee's tv station so you can watch it live I, I know it plays a hour before it regularly airs on tv but there may be still some ways to watch the episodes when they're playing mm -hmm. um so if you don't have a local horror show on saturdays a local creature features which hopefully you do hopefully everybody does i I don't. Not that I know. Man, when I was growing up, we had Creature Features, but I think it was on Sunday afternoons in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And I cannot remember the name of the the character. Uh, Ghouly Graves or something like that. Or Sir Ghouly Graves, I think, was the host mm -hmm. for the show. Or Ghastly Graves. And then I remember on Halloween, they would have Count Scary would host Halloween movies and... I remember having to go to 7-Eleven and getting from the TV guide, punch out 3D glasses, the old uh, one red lens, one blue lens, yeah. to watch the stuff in 3D on TV when he played the old movies. Uh, every every year at Halloween, Count Gary would show up, and it was just most ridiculous vampire makeup character. But I loved it, again, because this is like, this is a Halloween tradition. So if you don't have one, first check, make sure you don't have someone doing creature features. Uh, but then if you don't, yeah, check out the stuff uh, from North Bay TV with our creature features out here and check out House on the Hill. We'll have the All link right. in the show notes. Yes. Yes, we will. Um, I'm going to give one more because, you know, I, I figure, hey, let's throw it back to uh, what we're watching weekly. And this is one that I actually bought the disc. Um, you know, I paid my money for this. And it's Batman and Harley Quinn. This is the 29th DC animated movie um, that they've done. This is based on the characters from Batman the Animated Series. This was written by Bruce Timm and Jim Krieg. And Bruce Timm also did the story. And this is directed by Sam Liu. And this stars um, some names you really, you really will recognize here. Um, Kevin Conroy, uh, who is playing Batman, um, Lauren or Lauren Lester, who is uh, Nightwing. Um, Melissa Rauch is playing Harley Quinn in here, um, as opposed to I was it Arlene Sorkin and Arlene Sorkin was the original. Yeah, 
Um, and then Paget Brewster is in here as Poison Ivy. Kevin Michael Richardson is the Floronic Man, aka Jace, Jason Woodrow. And then you got a couple other people in here that have some smaller roles. Mindy Sterling's in here as a product supervisor. Uh, Bruce Tim voices Booster Gold. I love that. Like, there's so this movie is really, really funny. The plot of this is Batman and Nightwing discover that Poison Ivy and the Floronic Man have teamed up to do dastardly things. They later find out that she or that they are trying to do the same transformation thing that happened to Swamp Thing. And Batman realizes that, hey, if they're even, you know, one molecule off, this means the death for everyone. They, they are trying to find, you know, find a way to get to Poison Ivy. So, like, while Batman's chasing down leads, he sends Nightwing off to known associates. That means Harley Quinn. At this point in her career, she is no longer the a henchman for the Joker. She is no longer really a super villain. She's trying to go the straight and narrow and is working at a uh, costumed theme restaurant called Super Babes, where you see her dressing a lot more like Amanda Khan or Jimmy Palmiotti style Harley Quinn and less like traditional Batman the Animated Series Harley Quinn. And there's, I'm going to put, say this right now there are some great shout outs some great easter eggs in this um as they're going along you know where nightwing's looking for harley and you just see i think you just see his hand with people you know his hand holding a piece of paper and other people going no i haven't seen her i haven't seen her you get this old couple going yeah that's the arlene girl right and i'm like ah, i got that aha you know just little things like that that i'm like so good um but really funny really there's okay so in here you have when nightwing finally catches up with harley they get into a fight she wins because she has a low as she says a low dose joker toxin that she had on the palm of her hands when she smacked uh when she smacked uh nightwing and took her back up to her room where she hogtied him to her bed to try to figure out what to do they get talking as she says she got bored, but things start happening and a little uh, bounce of wow, wow happens. Um, and then they have fun. They're just having fun and stuff. That's where Batman meets up with them. And he's thinking that she's torturing him when really they're having a tickle fight. And uh, you don't really see too much, you know, like really anything they do a little bit of the over-sexualization on Harley Quinn because when she's changing, she bends over and you see the outline of the butt and uh, the the lady bits and all that stuff with with her panties. But, I mean, it's nothing... And then like, she turns around and sees the outline of him reacting to the outline of her butt. Yes. And that's what leads to... And, and they do at least give the line of, well, I'm taking this as consent... That's, yeah. that's been a problem that I've had with the the current run of Bruce, T Bruce Timm's writing on these DC character animated things is that they are all, in my opinion, unnecessarily racy. Yeah, I, I don't know why that decision's been made on these, if it's supposed to be more enticing for 
older fans coming into it, but then it makes it so that I'm less interested myself and I would be less likely to recommend this for kids today to watch. Uh, it that that whole scene just doesn't sit right with me. And and maybe it's a little a little bit me being too PC or something. I don't know. But I I I've seen that kind of continuing theme of uh a little too much sexualization like the the adaptation of the killing joke and the whole uh sexual encounter between barbara gordon and batman it just seems completely unnecessary and out of character for what i've always pictured barbara gordon to act like and uh robs her of some of her origin and and just basically makes it that she it felt like she was more in it because she wanted to nail Batman. And I, I just, yeah. I don't really appreciate that, but teach their own. Yeah. But in, in here it works a little bit more because there's the language and stuff in here. Like it's, um, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If you are going into this thinking that it's going to be like the original Batman, the animated series where you can and bring your kids to the area, you know, have your kids watch this. I will advise watch it first. I've done this as the, is the tradition with the DC animated movies, you know, of the parental doing the parental friendly um, rating. This is, I mean, there's a lot of language. There's a lot of innuendos and stuff like that. And I mean, even and to where as a fan myself, it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm fine with it, whatever, but for a seven, eight year old who's really into Batman, uh, uh-uh, this isn't going to do it. Now, that being said, I love the ending. They had a post credit scene in here with Harley getting her own Dr. Phil esque show complete with ripping off the, the logo and credits and everything. But it takes the Harley Quinn t- twist of it then becomes Wipeout without its anim- without their try what about the, the abc the, game show yes yes the abc and i say that one specifically because it has there's obstacles in here like the walls with the fists that come out the big cartoon boxing gloves knocking the people off the platform and the giant balls that you have to jump across um, and all that. but they do it where if the if her guest gets across he gets a year free with an actual psychiatrist because legally she is not allowed to call herself a doctor um, and all that. <laughs> it ends hysterically. Um, there are moments in here that are really good, really funny, even so much so as like to give credit to the animators. There's the scene where they're in Batman, Harley and Nightwing are going to Bloodhaven to get to track down one of Poison Ivy's henchmen. Well, they're in this place where there's these identical twin characters. And I, I want to say they're in the animated series, but I can't think of who they are. They're singing. And so she finds the guy talking with him and he won't give her the information unless she does something for him. Well, so she goes up and sings a song and it's a catchy song. Everyone's dancing, having a good time. Um, you see Nightwing full-on dancing with with a uh, a girl there at the bar like charlie brown you know just stuff you know with the girl and then you see batman 
he's just standing there this whole time. But then you see him start tapping his fingers to like to the song and stuff. And Nightwing look over and look down and look up and stuff. It's those little visual things. Nothing that Kevin Conroy said at all because he doesn't talk in that scene really all but four lines. And then boom, cut to, or, you know, you cut speed through to finishing it. One of the uh, other henchmen for another villain decided to uh, get Batman a drink, you know, buy, uh, buy that man a drink and all that stuff. And I want to say it was milk because it was just a white liquid, whatever. Um, and it's sitting there the whole time. And so they get done and the uh, people or the villains are like, all right, now it's time for the, fu- or now it's time to beat up the Batman and Nightwing. And now it's, you just see Batman go, just drink, fall and finish. Then he sets it on. I was like, let's have some fun. And I'm like, it's these little moments in here that, I, that really made me love the movie. Just because of the fact, just because of the fact that it's like they have this sense of humor that they could even make Batman crack the joke, you know, you know, and have fun with this. And and that's the thing is that going back to Batman, the animated series, one of the reasons why I love it so much is that it knows how to utilize the characters so the character feels 100 percent authentic to being yep. Batman. They, they can do the dark stuff. They can do everything else, but they can lighten it enough that it can be enjoyable it's not just one toned and and there are points in time justice league was really good at it of utilizing batman as a source of humor in a way that wasn't him cracking jokes but allowing jokes to be cracked not necessarily at his expense but just in the surprise of like really batman just did that and and that's where they they've nailed this character so well and what i always want to see happen in other mediums like movies or or the comics and i think the comics have have definitely done more of it uh over time but for a while batman was just so grim dark and i think one of the improvements i saw in justice league over batman v superman was it allowed more stuff like that in batman v superman the one funny moment is the oh i thought she was with you in Justice League, they let Ben as either Bruce or as Batman get a little bit more loose with some of that stuff. And that may have been the Whedon effect. That may have been stuff that Sutter was already planning. It's just that that made the movie more palatable to me than the ones that came before it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I, I will mention um, in here on IMDb, because there are funny, they're really great lines in here. IMDb has some of the quotes from the movie. Um, that are really, really good. But other than that, and, and they have the trivia, because I was looking at more more for the trivia and stuff. Like a lot of people from uh, Criminal Minds have been involved in DC projects, which is really cool to see. But yeah, it's really, it's really cool see, to hear this thing. Um, I The next movie I'm probably going to watch out of this is going to be uh, Gotham by Gaslight, because I've seen part of it. Um, but I was at my grandma's house, and I'm like, "All right, let's let's watch." I, th- I think I then went from that to Jim and Andy, um, because uh, this is where I get into a little bit of a cranky pants mode. I have these on Movies Anywhere. I downloaded the Movies Anywhere app on my Roku, um, which downloaded it on my grandma's Roku because that's how Roku likes to work. And all throughout watching 
Batman and Harley Quinn, I get loading at random, random ass spots. It's just loading. Takes a little bit. I'm like, all right, fine. It'll be times where it skips. And I caught on where I pause in the middle of a skip, almost like a bad disc, but I'm watching this digitally. Like if I pause it, it'll catch up and stuff. I go to my grandma's house. I, I rewatch Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, she's in there watching it. She claimed, I know she was enjoying it, but yeah, she claims it was a dumb movie. And I'm like, are you saying it's a dumb movie? Because I call, uh, you know, young and the restless or whatever her soap opera that she watches. Cause I call that a dumb show. You know, is this just you trying to get back at me or, or do you really think it's dumb? Cause you were enjoying this. I know you were. <laughs> my complaint is movies anywhere. You are a brilliant service. Don't make me have to go to voodoo or Google play movies. You know, these uh, services that I have linked to it to you when I, I can download you on my Roku app. And you also give me the special features. That's the other cool part is almost every movie I have in there has special features. So like I was watching on the uh, one of the special features, well, actually for Batman and Harley Quinn was sneak peek at DC's next project, which was Gotham by Gaslight. But the next one is uh, Suicide Squad. It's a Suicide Squad animated movie with Christian Slater doing the voice of Deadshot. And I'm like, this is really, at least with how they're marketing this, really awesome. Like, it's like, it got this gritty grindhouse, breaking bad sort of thing with it. But all these movies, like, they have basically the Blu-ray extras on there. Freaking love that. But yet, like, I tried playing it here and I've got really good internet. Nope, I'm going to sit here and wait, make you wait for a good little while here. Just enough to where you lose interest. Boom, done. Pulled me out of it. So that is going to be, I guess that's going to be it for us because we don't really have an Elsewords. Well, we sort of had an Elsewords in the middle of the show, <laughs> in the middle of the Elsewords. Anytime, anytime Corey starts talking, it becomes an Elsewords. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we will we will leave you guys with this. You can send us a voicemail. Um, you know, it's easiest way you can get in contact with us is the voicemail, the Twitter, or an email. Um, you could send us a voicemail at 805-328-3966, or you could email us mail at elsnerds.com. Or like I said, on Twitter, um, we give the Twitter handles out later, uh, later on. And you can, you can subscribe to us, gncasts.com slash subscribe. You know, you can find Galactic Network over at facebook.com slash galactic netcasts. That's also where they're at on Twitter. You know, we can find our show at elsnerds. Beatmaster is at Beatmaster80. Evan is at Mr. Underscore Fusion. Sean Burns is at S. Burns PA. And you can find me at that Gregor. Leave us comments. That's actually probably the easiest way is through the Twitter because I get a little notification every time someone replies to me. So you just go, boom, hey, watch your show or listen to the show, liked it, but you messed up on here and all that stuff. And I'll be like, thanks for pointing that out. I will be sure to correct that mistake in the future. Um, and Corey, you mentioned him earlier. One Levi Krauss. Haha, didn't do Strauss this time. But where can you where can people find his comics and stuff? Uh, you can find the comic works of Levi Krauss collectively at donescomics.com. And the final thing to be said is this has been a Don't Tell Glenn production. We will see you next week. Or else.
For more on this Galactic Network podcast, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com.